where the rubber hits the road really is in what we put on our plates. And if we're putting animal foods on our plates, we're supporting an abusive system. And if instead we're putting plant foods on our plates, especially those that are produced by small, organic, sustainable, regenerative types of farms, uh, we are voting with our dollars to create a new food system. That's Gene Bauer, the conscience of the food movement. This week's guest on episode 81 of the Unplugged podcast. Hi there, and welcome to another awesome week of the Unplugged podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly changing world. My name is Debo Zarko, warrior of truth, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your almost weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful, coastal British Columbia, Canada. And I'm recording this a little bit in advance because I am just about to embark on a few days over to Vancouver Island to celebrate the completion of the manuscript for my book, the Unplugged book that has been two years in the making, a labor of love, labor of blood, sweat, tears, frustration, joy. Oh my gosh, it's just been, it's been an incredible journey. And the manuscript is complete. It's currently in the hands of some amazing beta readers and then it goes off to editing and uh, and then design and release. Yeah, I'm going to be birthing my baby into the world and I can honestly say that I'm a little bit nervous. It's, it's hard when you've had something under your wings for this long to finally set it free but um, yeah, I'm excited at the same time. So as a celebratory measure uh, my partner and I and our three pooches and one of our cats <laughs> we're all going over to Vancouver Island we're going to head over to the Comox Valley we're going to go head up to Strathcona Provincial Park do some mountain climbing and perhaps a photo shoot for the book uh, we're going to head over to Tofino we're just going to really just chill and celebrate the uh, this very very long 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 labor of love and um, I'm really, really excited about that. And we'll see what else happens when we're over there. We're in the exploration phase of whatever is going to happen next in life. And I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, let's see, what else can I say? Decloaking and living authentically coming up November 2nd to 6th, still a few spaces left so if you're interested go to my website it's on the main page or you can go to devilsarco.com backslash decloaking and uh, sign up it's going to be amazing 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 very very excited about that and uh, if you've been listening to the last few shows you might have heard me mention that I had a speaking gig at the Sunshine Coast Veg Fest this past August and the featured speaker was Jean Bauer, who happens to be this week's guest on the Unplugged podcast. And I 
was thrilled to be able to spend so much quality time with him. In the past, whenever I've seen Gene, we've had some really, really nice exchanges, but they've been rather fleeting because we both had such uh, uh, intense schedules. But this time, we got to hang out together. So I had dinner with him on the night that he arrived, and uh, I happened to be shepherding him around, and we had some, a nice walk along the beach together, and... On his last day here, we had a whole afternoon to go out in the kayaks and just paddle the seashell inlet amongst the seals. So harbor seals with their baby seals. And we saw, oh my gosh, so many jumping salmon in the inlet. It was incredible. And tons and tons of other beautiful ocean wildlife. And we also had an opportunity, my partner and I and Jean, we, we found a really nice secluded place where we could just sit down and picnic. And we just, uh, we packed a really nice picnic in the kayaks and just had a really great opportunity to connect. And when he was here, I had the intention of inviting him for a podcast conversation in person. But when we were together, it just didn't feel right. It felt more appropriate and more right actually to just be present with him to just no no performing just to actually just be and to really get to know him and it was amazing that's all I can say it was amazing he is such a beautiful beautiful soul he is so kind and so compassionate and he has this boyish uh, innocence about him that is just so lovable <laughs> and I feel really, really honored now to really have solidified a beautiful, deep friendship with someone who I've admired for so long for his ongoing work for a more compassionate world. And I tell you, this guy, you know, even though he he's rubbing shoulders with the likes of, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and Moby and various other Hollywood celebrities, he is such a down-to-earth, humble guy, and it, it, just a pleasure to be around. And he's just so cute. He was wearing these cargo shorts when we were out kayaking. Not necessarily the most appropriate <laughs> kayaking attire. Um, you know, when you're in a kayak, you get a wet bum. So sadly, when we sent him off to uh, to the ferry to connect with his red-eye flight he went with a little bit of a wet behind as we all did but it, we had fun anyway so what can I say but Gene Bauer is a, a very 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 special soul and we decided that we were going to connect when he was back in Washington and that's what we did for this conversation and so this week's conversation is uh is a really powerful and moving conversation that brings in a lot of the content that he was um, he, he talked about when he was here on the coast, some of the stories that he shared that were so powerful and poignant that I, I feel that sharing them with you is a, a really powerful thing as well. So Gene's going to be sharing a number of the stories that he shared during his VegFest talk. We're also going to be talking about his new book, Living the Farm Sanctuary Way, which is a beautiful book. So if you don't have it already, it's 
a lifestyle guide. It's a recipe book. There's stories in there. It's beautifully designed, beautifully photographed. And, you know, as a pretty high standard graphic designer myself, I can honestly say that, hey, this was very, very well done. So it's a beautiful book, but also it's a beautiful book from an aesthetic point of view, but it's a beautiful book also from a content point of view. And in this conversation, you're going to hear a little bit from Pepe, the Chihuahua, who was sitting on Jean's lap when we were chatting over Skype. So Pepe had a few words to say as well. And, and uh, I didn't edit them out because, hey, he's a cute little guy. And um, yeah, so without further ado, we're actually going to just dive right into this week's conversation with Jean, who I am grateful to have in my life as a friend that I can now share with you. I can share his words of wisdom, his essence, and his beautiful, compassionate heart. And really, that's the theme for this podcast, is compassion. Daring to care and making compassion cool. With the amazing conscience of the food movement, Gene Bauer. Jean, thank you so much for, for coming back on the show. I am still on a high from your whirlwind visit here to the Sunshine Coast, which was a massive success. I think we guesstimated over 600 people in a seven-hour period, which is massive for the small community on this coast. Uh, you, you touched so many hearts and minds and uh, standing room only talk. We now realize that we need a bigger venue next year, but people are still talking about it. They're still talking about your presence here and the energy was so uplifting and I know for me that whenever, whenever I'm in the presence of these festive events that celebrate compassion and kindness, it always gives me so much hope and it feeds my soul and I feel really recharged. And um, so I know that you travel around the country speaking at a lot of these events and so many other different types of events and I'm really curious just to kind of start things off about... Um, how they are for you, how they, how these kind of events have evolved over the years, if you're noticing any shifts that are happening, um, and anything that, anything else that just comes to you when we talk about these festive events that seem to be part of a grassroots shift that's happening. No, I, I think there really is a grassroots shift that is happening in the vegan community. I think more and more people want to live well. Uh, more and more people have learned about factory farming. They don't like it and they want something different. So these festivals, I think, provide an opportunity to come together to talk about how we want to live, how we want to you know, celebrate life instead of eating food that makes us sick, which has unfortunately become the norm in, in Western civilization. Um, but, you know, veg fests have been going on for, you know, decades, I would say. Uh, but and there are some that still continue today. But what is happening now is there are more and more popping up in various communities all over North America. Some of these are even rural communities. Some of these are smaller cities. Some of these are bigger cities that are, you know, continuing to do this or adding new vegan 
events. Um, and, and some are veg fests, but there's also one in Chicago called Vegan Mania, which has a certain kind of funness to it. There's a vegan Oktoberfest in LA. It was in the Rose Bowl last year. Um, and also you have uh, vegan awareness being infused in different sorts of traditionally non-vegan events, like there are organic farming conferences, for example. And my girlfriend attended one recently in Portland where they were serving vegan food. So you have this vegan awareness that's, you know, spreading through veg fests, reaching the mainstream in, in a grassroots way there. And you also have vegan awareness being inserted into other sorts of agricultural and food events more than ever before. And I feel like that really is the shift. You know, we've been talking about this. When you were here, we talked about that quite a bit. I think when we were out kayaking, we talked about it. <laughs> did you make it home without wet shorts? I'm hoping. <laughs> I did. You know, I had plenty of time to be on the plane. <laughs> to dry out. <laughs> to dry out. I did. So it worked out okay. That was actually really fun. I, uh, I promised that you'd see a bald eagle. We didn't see a bald eagle, but we saw seals, we saw baby seals, we saw so many jumping salmon. I mean, it was such an awesome, awesome afternoon with you. It was beautiful. Yeah, no, I really was glad we had that time to enjoy nature and be in nature. And I, I think nature is healing. And, and uh, the more I can get there, the happier I am. Well, next time you come with your girlfriend, we're, we're going to take you to some really secret places and you'll see more things than you'll, you could ever imagine. Sounds good. I'd love that. <laughs> now, I'd like to talk about your new book. Now, this is, it's so beautiful. You know, I've got my hardcover copy. Uh, so your new book, Living the Farm Sanctuary Way. And last year, uh, I remember you reached out to me on Facebook wondering if I had any recipes to offer the book. And <laughs> since you and I've had our discussions about how we cook, you're probably yeah. very glad that I didn't offer anything. But <laughs> instead, uh, I remember I sent you over to my partner, and she's got three great recipes in the book. She's got the roasted root salad, um, what is it, her superfood dark chocolate granola, and her famous salted caramel chocolate bliss bites, which actually, they woke her up 4 o'clock one morning. She was so squirmy, and I said, just get up and write it out. And anyway, I'm really glad because now it's in your book. But you know, the book came out in April, and I, I know that it's it's more than a recipe book. It's more than a book of inspiring stories. Uh, it's it's more than a lifestyle guide. It's more than a book of tips and tools. It's just everything. I mean, you call here, the subtitle is The Ultimate Guide to Eating Mindfully, Living Longer, and Feeling Better Every Day. And I think that that's probably captures the essence of it. And it's beautifully designed, beautifully photographed, beautifully written, filled with over 100 delicious recipes. I mean, I'm really plugging this for you here. And <laughs> excluding, of course, our contributions, although I noticed that you have a recipe in there called the best tofu scramble you've ever had. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one recipe that I contributed. <laughs> I do some cooking, but not that much. And my scrambled tofu is one of my favorite meals to, to make. And I love it like on a weekend, you know, when you're able to just take it easy, sleep in and have a, a brunch at home. So I make the scrambled tofu when I'm able to do that. Do you feel like divulging your secret bean recipe that you shared with me when you were here? Ah, <laughs> that, that's sort of a quick, dirty, I need to eat something fast 
uh, approach. Um, yeah, you know, I, like we were talking about. <laughs> I'm getting I'll, I'll, you to confess here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're all works in progress. And one of the tenants in Living the Farm Sanctuary Life, the book, is to have a mindful relationship with food. And I try to do that. Um, I'm still working on it. Uh, that's the area that I probably have the most work to do. But, you know, as we discussed, sometimes what I'll do just very conveniently and fairly nutritiously, too. So I'll just take a can of beans like black beans and put them in a bowl, usually put them in a bowl and, <laughs> and then add some vegan mayo and ketchup and some hot sauce. And it makes it pretty nice, tasty, nutritious dish. So uh, that's the kind of thing I'll do sometimes as well. Well, and I have a confession to you because I've got my famous, in air quotes, pasta dish, which is just pasta, a little bit of red sauce, nutritional yeast, and brags. And when I tell Deb that I make that, she's kind of grossed out because she's such a great cook. Yeah, yeah. So so there we go. We have our simple little dishes. And I think I, I, need to, I need to work on the same thing, more mindful connection with food. I'm grateful that I live with a cook. That helps. Helps a lot, definitely. But yeah. anyway, like back to the book. So it's a book that's, you know, I, I really believe is worth being so proud of. And I'm curious to know how it's been received. What was the inspiration behind this book? And for you to explain like really what the essence of the book is all about. I realize the subtitle kind of captures it, but if there's more to it, you know, if we could just dive into that a little bit. Yeah, well, my first book came out in 2008, and it was a history of farm sanctuary, a description of how we started by investigating factory farms, um, seeing horrible conditions, trying to confront those and make a difference by rescuing animals, telling animal stories, um, educating people about factory farming. I think there is now a lot of awareness about factory farming and people realize that this is a, a messed up food system and we need to do something different. So the new book, Living the Farm Sanctuary Life, is more about living well and giving people tools for taking steps and sort of applying uh, techniques to live well instead of just having to educate people, which the first book was largely about education and awareness raising. This one assumes that there's a certain level of awareness and talks more about how to live well and things people can do to start taking steps that are healthy for themselves, better for animals, better for the planet, better for all of us. So uh, that's why we have 100 great recipes because where the rubber hits the road really is in what we put on our plates. And if we're putting animal foods on our plates, we're supporting an abusive system. And if instead we're putting plant foods on our place, especially those that are produced by small, organic, sustainable, regenerative types of farms, uh, we are voting with our dollars to create a new food system. And I think ultimately that's where a big part of the shift has to happen is in the marketplace with citizens making more mindful food choices and supporting a food system that doesn't destroy the planet, doesn't abuse animals and doesn't produce food that causes such enormous human health harm the way our current food system does. Yeah, I heard you once say that food is our most intimate connection to the earth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so powerful, it's so profound, and it's so true. And, you know, when we're talking about the roots of change, you know, I believe that, you know, festivals like what 
we just experienced together is that's definitely affecting change at the root level. But even at a deeper root is what you just said is voting with our dollars because I feel like we as the citizens really are the roots of the system and we can affect the change. We're really the only ones who can affect the change because when we look at change from the top down, from government levels, um, corporate levels, it's so slow and cumbersome because these people don't want to change. They have no desire to change as long as there's a consumer demand for their products, you know, no matter how cruel they are they're going to keep on doing what they they want to do but the change really happens at the at the grassroots level so i feel like the greatest change that we can make is with our personal choices and voting with our dollars as you mentioned and you know it seems like for so many people they think that it's so insignificant their choices are so insignificant in the grand scheme of this giant monolith of a system that we have uh but I remember hearing you say something about how because of this, there's now more demand for plant-based milks, for instance. There's so many more on the market, and that's because of consumer demand. And it's the same thing, I guess, with these, these uh, I'm, what's the right terminology? Mock meats, whatever the case may be, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. But there's more vegan foods out there. Definitely since I went vegan in 1999, and I'm sure since you went in, what, 85, I guess it is? I mean, it's been a long time. So, I, you know, I'd like to explore this conversation a little bit more about change from the roots and voting with our dollars and really empowering listeners to understand how significant these, these changes really are. Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, if we step back, we look at the food system we have today, and it's actually been enabled largely by us consumers who have bought the advertising and marketing campaigns of these industries. And the reason they are so powerful is because essentially we have enabled them by buying their stuff and voting for that system with our dollars. And, you know, in the 50s, when this whole fast food business began, uh, we didn't really know how harmful it would be. Now we do. And we can make more informed choices. And so for citizens, you know, every day we spend dollars on our food. And although sometimes maybe we grow it, which is even better if we're not spending dollars. Uh, but when we do spend the dollars, uh, it is like we are enabling and endorsing and voting for a particular food system. And so this is why I very much encourage people to go to farmers markets, get to know local food producers and support them if you feel good about them and know what they're doing. Get involved with community supported agriculture programs where people buy a share at the beginning of the growing season and over the course of the season they have food that is available to them you know various types of produce and with that system consumers share with the farmers in the risks and for many new farmers especially the risks of investing in in seeds and other inputs at the beginning of the season can be very costly. So sharing that with consumers helps with the risk. And also it helps connect consumers with the farmer in a more uh, uh, healthy way, I think, where they're participating together and sharing in the bounty or sharing in, you know, you know, the, the less than bounty that a year may have, you know. Um, but the way we eat, you know, our food becomes our bodies. It affects our brains. Uh, it affects our world in a very fundamental and profound way. And 
it's not something people think enough about. You know, we eat food that makes us sick. It's really crazy. And we also support an agricultural system and have been that is destroying the planet and abusing animals in atrocious ways. And, you know, when we eat that animal foods from these, especially from horrible farms, or just that have been slaughtered, there's a violence there that we sort of ingest and it affects our world. And I think people don't like it when they step back and think about it. And, and that is happening now. People are thinking about it and replacing animal foods with plant foods. And in some cases, there can be meatless meats like veggie hot dogs or veggie burgers or meatless um, drumsticks like chicken type things. And, and those I think are very good transition foods, especially for people who are used to eating those kinds of meats. But ideally, I think it's best for ourselves as well as for the planet to move towards more whole plant foods, to eat beans, for example, uh, grains, fruits and vegetables. And the more we can get food closer to the source, the better, which also speaks to the benefits of shopping at farmers markets and eating fruit and berries in season. And then they're fresher, they're loaded with nutrients. And also, you know, if we have a bumper crop or if at a certain time in the year, there's an awful lot of raspberries or whatever the fruit may be, you know, that's something that can also be canned or frozen or preserved to be used later. And that's what humans have done for generations. And it's a sensible way to live. You know, there is plenty that this earth will grow for us. It's just as long, but it's up to us to, to behave in a way that is efficient and sustainable. And ultimately today, I think it needs to be regenerative because we've created such harm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, when I was on the Sunshine Coast, I stayed at a bed and breakfast where they had a garden and were growing berries. And it was a beautiful thing to see, you know, and it was wonderful to eat blueberries that came off the blueberry bush that morning. So that's an example of what people can do. It's, and so part of it is supporting businesses by shopping at farmers markets and so on. But part of it also is perhaps growing your own food and connecting to the earth that way, which is very, very healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's it's such a powerful statement. I know living in a small community now, the uh, community-supported agriculture and farmers markets are really, really big out here. But I know that that doesn't necessarily apply to just a small community because it's happening in bigger cities as well, which is beautiful to see. And it's just a matter of getting out there and, and supporting these smaller they're not even systems, really. They're just supporting smaller people who are doing things more mindfully, more consciously, and more lovingly. And that is, that's how we affect the change. But you know, what? one of the things that <clears throat> I know, um, I think you might have mentioned this during your talk when you were here, you talked about a little bit about the, the myth of humane labeling. Uh, and that's another thing, like I'm noticing that there is, seems to be a shift. People know that factory farming is bad but they're not willing to make the change. So instead they, they buy into these feel good labels, uh, you know, grass fed free range, like out here, it's raw milk. That seems to be the thing that they're really into. And then the word natural, which is the one that bugs me the most. I mean, it's such a crock of 
I'm like, you know what? <laughs> but yeah. I mean, like recently I've been looking for an eco toothbrush, for example, and I found many that say that they're natural. But then when I started to look into what natural meant, I found out these natural bristles on these toothbrush brushes are made from pig hair from pigs slaughtered in China. Mm. So, okay, sure, it's natural, but natural doesn't necessarily mean cruelty-free. So it seems like they just don't go together. They don't cohabitate those two words in this world of consumption. Um, but back to the humane myth. So really, ultimately, as long as we're eating animals and animal products, there's really nothing humane about it. Yeah, that's true. If you, if you think about it, the word humane and the word slaughter don't fit very well together. And for the animals that are raised for food, they're seen just as commodities, not as living, feeling creatures. Most of them live in these factory farms, but many of them live on farms that are labeled as humane, but are still essentially factory farms. You know, that's the other thing. These labels really are misleading. They sound a lot better than they are. But even if an animal was raised in a very nice situation, at the end of the day, they're violently killed to be cut up and then consumed. And it's hard to consider that as humane. And, and if we can live well without killing and eating other animals, why wouldn't we? It's, it's better for the animals. It's better for us. You know, working in a slaughterhouse is a violent bloody, stressful job. And ideally, in, people don't have to do that. We can live without doing that. And I think we're all better off. But, but you know, as you say, there is widespread opposition to factory farming. That is a good thing. There are now these labels saying that certain animal products are raised humanely. That is misleading. But it's an indication that the industry recognizes that people do care People do not support animal abuse. People do want alternatives. Um, of course, the industry, the animal industry, is trying to exploit that sensitivity to these issues and is marketing these products and oftentimes is marking them up and making a bigger profit margin on them even. Um, so that's kind of where the action is now in terms of movement. And this is where going to farmers markets and participating in community supported agriculture programs and getting closer to the source of the food, I think is very healthy because then people can sort of cut through the misrepresenting labels. And, and then ultimately each person has to decide whether or not to eat animals. Uh, but people now are doing it in a way that is where they're sort of deluded into believing these animals have a halfway decent life when they don't. And they also don't think enough about the reality of slaughter and just how violent and bloody it is. And I think the closer we get to the source of our food, the more we realize that. And when there are so many plant-based alternatives available and we eat more of those and start replacing animal foods with plant foods, I think it's a trend that builds momentum and grows individually as well as collectively. And you know, you mentioned the word natural, and I, I just need to say about that is, is that it basically means nothing. You know, you, you have beef, for example, from cow cattle that are raised in a feedlot, implanted with hormones, fed antibiotics, and then slaughtered at a massive slaughterhouse, and that can be sold as natural beef. So these labels really, especially labels like natural mean pretty much nothing you know it seems that there's there's 
a movement that seems to be happening and growing at a grassroots level, but there's also a lot of interest in maintaining the status quo rather than challenging it. So for instance, um, antibiotics that are fed to animals. There's, I believe that, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the antibiotics that are created are fed to animals just to uh, ensure that they can endure the horrible life conditions that are imposed on them. And then consumers eat these animals, so they eat the violence, they eat the antibiotics, they eat all that suffering, and then they get sick. They need medications, and it's or terribly invasive surgeries. And this unconscious cycle of cruelty, death, and illness is what just, we've, we've kind of normalized it. And it, to me, it's just so bizarre that this violence is so normalized and how the human mind has such an incredible ability to normalize the grossly abnormal in order to prevent change. And I remember uh, when you were here, you told a story about uh, Cornell students when they were learning, I think it was tail docking. And that kind of speaks to how quickly we can normalize the abnormal. And I'm wondering if you could just share that story and maybe we could just explore this conversation a little bit. Yeah, no, bad can become normal and people can sort of shut off their empathy and their desire to care. And, and I've seen this and this factory farming industry requires us essentially to do that as consumers and also as producers. But, you know, the story I mentioned when I was on the Sunshine Coast uh, and I've talked about a few times is when I was at Cornell University, I, I got a master's degree there in agricultural economics. And I took animal science classes as part of that. And I remember during one class, we went into the pig barn where there were two mother sows with their baby piglets. And they were in farrowing crates where the mother has about a two foot wide space. Then there's another space on the side that's about 18 inches wide where the piglets are so that when the mother lays down, the piglets can nurse through the bars. And these are what farrowing crates look like. This is where baby pigs are born and they nurse for a few weeks and then the babies are taken away. But while they're in those crates, the industry engages in routine farming procedures, such as tail docking, where they cut off the tails of the piglets, or ear notching, where they cut deep notches into the ears of the piglets for identification purposes. And we were being shown these practices as students at Cornell in an animal science class. And when the teacher pulled the first piglet out of the crate and cut off the tail, and he did this without any painkillers, and he did it in a very sort of matter-of-fact way, uh, the pig was screaming like crazy, the pig was bleeding like crazy, the pig was clearly in pain and distress. And the students in this class were horrified by it. They, we all, you know, were uncomfortable and upset. And, and then the teacher said, who wants to try this? And none of the students wanted to. We all looked down or tried not to catch his eye as he looked around the group. But eventually, one young man in the class stepped forward and tried his hand at cutting off this piglet's tail. And then a second student stepped forward. And each time a student stepped forward, you could see the initial resistance of the group draining away and you could see bad becoming normal. How people who have empathy and feelings and are hurt and bothered to see others hurt come to accept it and to rationalize it and to 
ultimately perpetrate it. So, you know, we're social animals and we tend to rub off on those around us. And if everybody's doing a certain thing, um, it takes a very strong individual to do something different. And, you know, most people in the class just sort of went along and started then rationalizing that they were doing this for the well-being of the piglets. They actually started saying that because by, and so this is a crazy rationalization, but they, the argument is that by cutting off the tails of the piglets, when they confine them in these factory farms, the piglets are not going to chew the tails of the other pigs with them. And this is an aberrant behavior that occurs when animals are stressed and overcrowded in these factory farms. The industry doesn't even think about the idea that, well, maybe these animals could live in a different kind of situation that, where they wouldn't be driven to such madness. But instead, they kind of twisted it and started rationalizing that cutting off these piglets' tails was for the piglets' well-being. So that's kind of how it, it gets rationalized. And I think that that just really speaks to the what we're up against with the human mind, how it really can rationalize the abnormal. Same thing with chickens in factory farms with how they're de-beaked. And, you know, I, I'm sure you probably hear this, or maybe you don't, but because so, I know that your, your circle of compassion is so wide. So maybe you don't hear this, but I hear this from people out there. Oh, you know, when they found out that I'm vegan. Oh, well, you know, I don't eat that much meat. I only eat chicken and fish. As if it's okay to eat chicken. It, it's, those animals are okay, but all the other animals aren't. So that, to me, is another one of those examples of how the human mind warps the truth in order to, I guess, help someone feel a little more comfortable, even though they know, they know. I, I, you, can, you can hear it on a subconscious level that there's, there's still a misalignment with their values that they're aware of. So... You know, I, I don't know, like the human mind is so, is so strange. It's such a, a strange beast. But then I remember another story that you told me kind of along the same lines or you, that you've told the, uh, the crowd about the, a pigeon shoot that you were at and how your mindset shift as activists started to really change things with that pigeon shoot so we've talked about how the human mind can rationalize the abnormal but then when you start thinking on a higher level how you can actually create significant change and i'm wondering if you could just speak to that story as well i think our movement ultimately needs to tie in to humanity's better angels and find that kernel of compassion in anybody because it is there it's just how far has it been clouded over and discouraged and closed off. And, you know, as an activist, we need to look at our tactics and our approach and see what it brings out in others. And with the pigeon shoot that I d discussed, um, when we first, this is a shoot that happened in the state of Pennsylvania in a very rural part. And every Labor Day weekend, the town people would come out and they would shoot pigeons and drink a lot of beer to raise money for their community. And animal rights activists banded together and said, this is cruel, this is wrong, and it needs to stop. So we started going there and confronting them and saying, this is cruel and it needs to stop. And they fought back and it became essentially a circus where they were yelling at us and we were yelling at them. 
and we were not communicating or appealing to their better angels. And by screaming, in a sense, you know, we were kind of being pulled down into the same ugliness. And somebody watching from the outside would say, what a bunch of jerks, because everybody's yelling at everybody. <clears throat> we changed our tact, recognizing that it wasn't being very effective, and in fact was even, I think, bringing out more shooters and bringing more of that same kind of ugly energy to the event. And instead of yelling and screaming how wrong this was, which is an understandable perspective, you know, if there's something wrong happening, you know, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. So I, I totally understand the sentiment, but we need to channel that anger and use it in a way that is productive. So we stopped yelling basically and just started documenting conditions, being witnesses. And we tried to do what we could do. You know, we couldn't stop them at the moment, but what we could do is we could rescue birds that were being injured and try to provide them with veterinary care and then a sanctuary. And by the way, all the pigeons that now fly around Farm Sanctuary in Watkins Glen, New York, are descended from the Higgins pigeon shoot. So we started rescuing birds. And, and then what happened was that when a bird was injured, an animal protection person would run and try to get the bird to bring to the veterinarian. The shooters started now responding with more violence and they would run to try to get to the pigeons before we did so they could kill them. And they would literally rip them up in front of us. They would bite off their heads. They would do some very, very ugly things. And what this did was it, I think, sort of distanced their behavior from ours in a very obvious way. And somebody watching from the outside would see that the animal people were trying to be kind and do a nice thing for an injured animal. And the shooters were doing very ugly things and were not very becoming of humanity. And we were able ultimately to get that pigeon shoot shut down. And it was partly because we changed our tact. We Set, we, we tried to behave in a way that honored the best of humanity and respect for others, and it was successful. Um, but, you know, when you were talking earlier about how a lot of times people, you know, when they learn you're vegan, say, well, I don't eat as much meat anymore, or I don't eat beef, but I eat other animals. I, I think that does also speak to the human ability to compartmentalize mm, and to rationalize yeah. and to put certain things in some categories and other things in other categories. And one of Farm Sanctuary's first bumper stickers was, if you love animals called pets, why do you eat animals called dinner? There really is no reasonable difference. You know, these are all individuals who have feelings, who deserve to be treated with respect and compassion. Doing so is good for the animals and it's also good for us. And, you know, when people stop eating cows, that is a good step, obviously, but then they will sometimes say, but I still eat birds and fish. And I think one of the reasons why people may feel that they can do that or that those animals are different is because they're that much different than humans. Humans are mammals, so it might be easier to understand other mammals. But that doesn't mean that non-mammals, birds and fish, for example, don't have feelings and don't have complex emotional lives and cognitive lives. It just means that perhaps because we are mammals and not birds and not fish, then maybe we don't understand them as well. So it's easier to understand somebody who is more like you, 
but that doesn't mean that those that are not like you uh, suffer any less or deserve any less consideration and respect. I think that that speaks to something that's really important about how really we need to have higher level conversations. And I think that's one of the things that you and I both spoke about at VegFest is how vegan is really so much more than a diet, how really essentially what vegan is, is it, it's a lifestyle transformation that plugs us back into the web of life. And that is the conversation that needs to be had. It's not about separating ourselves from one species or another, separating ourselves from another because we have different beliefs. It's about remembering that our interconnection, that we are interconnected in this web of life and this separation that we have bought into with this consumptive uh, culture that we live in has caused so many problems. I mean, you saw it when you were out here. You saw the drought that was out. You saw you saw the mountains still smoking for you know weeks later after the the fire that started. This environmental crisis that we're in is because of our collective ignorance in separating ourselves from the web of life. So I'm curious to know you know what you have to say about how vegan really is so much more. Yes, we can you know we we need to talk about the food aspect, but there's so much more to it that I think is, is the conversation that's started. It seems to be happening like on the periphery, but I think that this is the bigger conversation that needs to be had now. And hopefully the media is going to pick this up. You know, I agree. Food is something that's very obvious. It's something we do every day and our food choices have profound impacts. So it's an important area, but it is also, I think, important to have a sort of, philosophical underpinning about why eating a certain way makes sense and other ways don't make sense. And it can be very practical in terms of resources and how we're just ruining the planet with animal agriculture because it is so inefficient. But it ultimately, I think, boils down to our relationships with Earth and with each other and with other animals. And for me, being vegan is an aspiration to live as kindly as possible because it's impossible to be perfect. You know, all of us are humans. We will make mistakes. Just living on the planet, we cause harm. Um, You know, but to the extent that we could lessen that and to live well and help others to live well and to develop mutually beneficial relationships, uh, I think that is what to me is is critical how do we create mutually beneficial relationships so being vegan is not an ingredient list it's more about healthy relationships and you know when you talk about farming and food just you know plowing and planting and harvesting you know can upset the earth you know just that practice itself there is some violence in a sense there um But that's just life. You know, you do what you can to minimize that. And this is why lately I've been a strong proponent of permaculture, you know, instead of sort of the monocrop monocrop agriculture that's the norm um, and permaculture farming where you have berry bushes and you have sort of an integrated vegetable garden where you have plants that work in sort of Co- in, in a coordinated way and, and kind of work well together and, you know, help each other. You know, certain plants take nitrogen out of the soil, other plants put nitrogen in the soil. So that's a mutually beneficial kind of relationship. And so creating those 
I think is what we need to do. And it's a work in progress. This is kind of an ongoing developing thought process. And, um, and it's not simple. It's not black and white. Um, but I think if we have the underpants, my, my little dog, Tepe's making noises. <laughs> he's so cute. He is. He is pretty cute. Tough too. He, he's tough. Yes. Little Pepe. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, it's about relationships, you know, and, and that, and, and are these based on respect and mutual benefit or are they based on exploitation? where one side is taking from the other side and where one side is disrespecting the other side. And that can be with earth, it can be with animals, can be with people. And so that to me is, is ultimately what being vegan is about, is living as kindly as possible and trying to create mutually beneficial relationships with other people and animals in the earth. And I think this is a beautiful place to segue into the five tenets of farm sanctuary living. Yeah, well, the, there in the book, Living the Farm Sanctuary Life, we talk about the five tenets. The first one being to live in alignment with our values. And most people are humane and have empathy and don't want to see others suffer. But most people are unwittingly supporting a horrible food system by buying animal foods. So living in alignment with our values is key. Uh, and it also feels much better instead of being dissonant and saying, don't tell me I don't want to know about factory farming and slaughter. It's too upsetting. Instead of having that dissonance, we can know where our food comes from and feel good about it. The second tenant is to have a mindful relationship with other animals. And this has actually been shown to improve our own lives, increase our longevity, improve our health, reduce stress. It's also good for animals. And that really speaks again to mutually beneficial relationships. So having mindful relationship with other animals is the second tenant of living the farm sanctuary life. Third tenant is to have a mindful relationship with our food, to know where it come from, to know, to, to enjoy it, uh, to, to know how it nourishes our bodies. Instead of, instead of eating food that is junk or too much sugar and then, you know, causes us to not be our best and then not recognizing that. So being mindful about our food and, and knowing where it comes from is the third tenant. The fourth tenant is to eat plants for our own well-being, our own health. And it's been estimated we could save an enormous amount, something like 70% of healthcare costs in the US by shifting to a whole foods plant-based diet. The way we're eating now is contributing to obesity, heart disease, cancer. And if you look at our bodies, we are best suited to eat plants, not animals. If we were natural carnivores, we would have a very short intestinal tract, but human beings have a very long intestinal tract. And the reason carnivores have a short one is because meat is a putrefying flesh and it has to get through the system quickly. With human beings, with a very long, windy intestinal tract, we have meat in there for days and it starts emitting toxins and it can be problematic. So eating plants for our health is the fourth tenant, and the fifth tenant is to eat plants for the well-being of the planet. And the United Nations has estimated that, or has said, that animal agriculture is one of the top contributors to the most serious environmental problems we're facing. United Nations says that animal agriculture contributes more to climate change than the entire transportation industry. So this is an industry that is bad for us, bad for the earth, 
bad for animals. It is not in our interest to be eating foods or supporting that industry. And, and there's more awareness now. So, so basically those are the tenants. And I know that you got to speak about your book on the daily show. Yeah, that was an opportunity, man. Yeah. That is a cool story. And, uh, well, it's kind of like story hour with Gene Bauer today. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could just share that story too, because it's so interesting how, you know, the way you set it up too about how we can affect change when we don't even know that we're affecting change. Yeah, every day each of us does things that have impacts, and we may never know what those impacts are. Uh, so the Daily Show appearance started actually a few years earlier, the way this whole thing came out, was um, I wrote a book in 2008, and somebody who had read that book left it in a vacation house in New Jersey on the beach um, that is rented by various families and individuals. And one of the families who rented that vacation house was the Stewart family, you know, from John Stewart of The Daily Show. And somebody left that book in that vacation house and Tracy Stewart read it. Um, We ended up connecting and having dinner a little over a year ago and John came to dinner. And I mentioned I had this new book coming out called Living the Farm Sanctuary Life. And John said, well, I have this show. And that's basically where the seed was planted. And I had an amazing opportunity to be on The Daily Show in April of 2015. And it really helped get the word out about the new book and about Farm Sanctuary and about the issues we work on. So um, it started, though, because somebody left my first book in that vacation house. And for people who are leaving literature around or talking to people about these issues or sharing something on Facebook or sharing things online. No, you're planting seeds and you never know what that will lead to. Exactly. And I know uh, I had a recent conversation with Ethan Brown and he said that he's aspiring to, uh, what he's aspiring to do with Beyond Meat is to make his product more desirable than animal products. And that just started with you know, it started with a little idea as well. He had no idea that it was going to get as big as it is and as big as it's going to get. I can see that it's going to be something really massive. So essentially, he's actually riding the wave of the iPhone in that everybody wants one. So ultimately, I feel that this is the way that we need to go. Like we need to make caring cool. And we can do that by planting little seeds here and there, not even knowing that necessarily we're actually making an impact but it doesn't matter it doesn't really matter the fact is we're doing what we need to do and and we're doing what we feel good about we're exactly. doing what we are best suited to do and we're doing what is good for us yeah you know, and the planet and animals it's a win-win-win we're not talking about putting anybody down we're talking about really trying to live as well as possible and that's really the bottom line you know for ourselves and for others And like you said, you know, humans are social creatures. And I believe that at the essence of who we are, at our very core, we really are caring people. We've just been brought up in this culture that has has made it more cool to not be caring and not be feeling. And so by planting these seeds and by, you know, using the Gandhi quote, being the change that we wish to see in the world and just really exemplifying caring and compassion and showing how abundant and joyful it really is people want a piece of that yes and i think compassion is becoming cool 
And I think that, you know, small farmers and it's also healthy, just feels so good. And when somebody comes into contact with somebody living well and, and being in, enlivened by their vegan lifestyle, I think it really becomes contagious. Yeah. And if we think criti critically, if we challenge the status quo with higher level thoughts and, you know, believe, I believe that critical thought is the union of head with heart. So it's a higher level thinking that includes feeling. And if we, if we uh, adjust our choices and our actions and our behaviors, then the system that's been causing so much harm to the earth, the animals and ourselves, it doesn't have a chance. And that's, I believe, how we slay, how David slays Goliath. Yes, definitely. And that, that's a system that we sort of inadvertently brought into existence. You know, so we can also now create something different. Exactly. We created it. We can uncreate it. Yep. And create something much better. And I think this is a great place to end. So great talking to you again, Deb. I got to get back out. We got to go hang out with some more seals in the water there. I know. I, I Hopefully you and your girlfriend come out for a, a longer time. We can show you some great places and, you know, we'll, we'll show you how amazing this place is. You got a little taste of it. I got a little taste of it and also some amazing blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> Gene, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I know you're such a busy guy and I am so grateful every time I get to spend even like five minutes with you. I love spending time with you too, Deb. So let's yeah, stay in touch and we'll uh, see you out there again at some point before too long, hopefully. That's Gene Bauer, president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary, best-selling author, and the aptly titled Conscience of the Food Movement. And if you're interested in listening to my first conversation with Gene, you can find that on my website at debozarco.com backslash Gene Bauer. So that's G-E-N-E-B-A-U-R. And that's episode number eight. And the show notes for this week's episode can be found at debozarco.com backslash Gene. So just Gene without his last name. And I strongly recommend get his book, Living the Farm Sanctuary Way. As I mentioned, uh, it's, it's a beautiful book and it's so worth it. Great recipes and lots of information for living a more inspired and compassionate lifestyle. The Farm Sanctuary Way. And if you're not already on my email list, when you're at the website, sign up and get your free copy of the PDF and audio version of the Status Quo Crusher Revolution Manifesto. It's now 3.0. I've upped it a notch, a significant notch. And while you're there, you can also get yourself a beautiful organic cotton t-shirt, a downloadable meditation, or sign up for the Decloaking and Living Authentically experience here on the coast from November 2nd to 6th. I would love to see you here. I really would. And... We can go deep together. <laughs> It'd be awesome. Transform together. And lastly, I'm always grateful when you take a few moments to rank and rate this podcast. It just means so much to spread the word for this mes message of compassion and inspiration and purpose and just really living, living a heart-based life. We need, God knows we need a world that is more heart-centered. That's for sure. Yeah. So... 
it's as simple as a rank and a rating and that just gets it out into the public eye a little bit more. So I appreciate all of those who've already left reviews and those who do so today (laughs) or tomorrow. I really appreciate that too. Thank you. And that's it for this week. The end of another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.